Setting up a desk area in the kitchen, Zoom call-induced headaches, or getting furloughed and paid to not do any work. This year has shaken up the world of work like never before. The pandemic has made us reimagine how work fits into our economy and our lives. COVID gives us the perfect excuse to really look at what is the future of work. It's a dreadful thing that we're going through, but the exciting thing of it is that we can reinvent the workplace. So, with 79% of business leaders and nearly two-thirds of the public open to bringing in a shorter working week in light of the pandemic, should we be thinking more about working less? Could a shorter working week help us recover from coronavirus? When you think about it, our five-day working week is quite arbitrary. Why is it five days? Is it the best way to work? Introducing a four-day working week as a way of helping the country recover and create a better future post-COVID-19. This represents an investment in people. You grow productivity not by making them work every hour God sends, but by having a better work-life balance. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, have we opened up? to the idea of a shorter working week. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm very happy to be joined down the line by Alfie Sterling, Director of Research and Chief Economist at the New Economics Foundation and one of the authors of The Case for a Four-Day Week. Hi, Alfie. Hi there. Thanks for coming back, returning friend of the pod. And I'm also really excited to be joined by Anna Coote, another returning friend of the pod, Principal Fellow at the New Economics Foundation and another one of the authors of The Case for a Four-Day Week. Hi, Anna. Hi there. Okay, so as always, we're going to jump in. This isn't the first time we've talked about a shorter working week on the pod, as our loyal, lovely listeners will know. But since then, the COVID pandemic has, well, it's changed everything, but it's also changed the world of work. So, Do you think it's opened up space to think about working less? Either of you feel free to jump in. Well, I think when we started to write the book, of course, there was no COVID. We were just writing it for a number of very good reasons. But as we came to finishing it, we realised that the world had changed almost beyond recognition and that the idea of working a full five-day, eight-hour week would be the exception rather than the rule. And the all sorts of signs that people were just beginning to do things differently. And also that employers were starting to feel that it was quite normal to reorganize the way that their staff worked. So some of the biggest barriers that had been stated to us in earlier years, because NEF has been talking about the need for a shorter working week for more than a decade now, these barriers seem to be coming down. And so I think this is a really good moment. Yeah, I mean, over the summer, we had uh, last summer, the Corbyn led coalition government talking all about the the shorter working week. And it was just kind of passed off as another one of their really left field policies that could never happen. And whereas this summer, a poll found that nearly two thirds of the public, including a majority of Tory voters, want the government to consider a shorter working week, as you say, Anna. So Alfie, do you think this means the public is generally more receptive to the idea than it has been in the past? Yeah, I think that is true. I think... um one of the main things about the pandemic is actually not just the impact it had on the patterns of people's work, you know, things that Anna was speaking to earlier. So, you know, people are commuting less, they actually have more control over their time as they work remotely, the relationship with work has changed and there's more discretion now for some people in terms of how they um, spend their hours. And that's made a big, big impact, if not on the amount of work, but certainly on the the pattern, which I think we'll come on to later as a, a really important part of all of this. 
but also I think just in a really big picture sense, the pandemic's been a bit of a through the looking glass moment insofar as it's actually the first time in many people's memory, in their living memory, where we've chosen as a country to take an economic hit, to take a hit in terms of GDP, in terms of the wider economy, for reasons that, that sit outside of the economy. So our health, our well-being, and the public health of society more generally. And that's a really important moment because we've actually it, it shows that when push comes to shove, actually there are things that are more important than the economy in and of itself. And valuing what an economy does for people is the most important thing and our, our well-being and, and collective health is the priority. And I think that's shifted perspective quite a bit because if we're able to, in view of pandemic, shift our priorities and protect people's health, why can't we do that as part of our long-term structures and patterns as well? Okay. The pandemic has pushed us into a recession as we've been talking about ad nauseum on the pod. Alfie, can shorter working hours tackle the rise in unemployment that we're seeing? Is there, is there a correlation there? Yeah, there is. And, and actually, you know, a shorter working hour agenda is really important in a recession for two reasons. So one is that it allows you to, rather than making sort of all or nothing binary redundancy decisions, so people losing their job entirely, it provides a, a means for employers to spread that burden across a workforce. So perhaps multiple workers dropping down their hours by an increment, which means that everyone's jobs get protected, which is an important thing in and of itself, because it's it's moving in and out of work that can become really destructive for people, both economically and in terms of well-being. So just reducing hours is far better. But the other way, and this is where we've seen actually um, you know, government policy being very positive in the UK, but especially in, um, in Europe, where there's been really comprehensive short hour work schemes that subsidise pay as well. Because the second thing is, if you're asking workers to drop down their hours, then that will have a pay implication in terms of um, how valuable they are to their employer. Now, for some workers, that may not be a big deal. But for many, for the majority, cutting pay is simply not affordable, especially in the UK, where there's a prevalence of low paid work. But if government can step in and temporarily top up pay to make sure workers still have that same overall or close to overall gross pay. So in, in the UK, it was 80% protection of gross pay whilst being furloughed. What that does is it also preserves spending in the economy as well. And that has a knock-on effect of protecting jobs because as long as people have money to spend, whether they're going to be shopping online rather than on the high street or be able to spend money on food and other basics and essentials, that will preserve and protect jobs as well. That makes sense. One question I had though is, would this be kind of implementable across all different sectors and industries, I guess, equally, or would it be something that people with certain types of jobs, say office-based jobs could benefit from more? And would that therefore lead to kind of more unequal outputs in the way that it was implemented? Yeah. So I think one of the key things for me from the book is that although the four-day week kind of phrase um, is really important just to kind of grabbing attention and to kind of highlight the real emphasis in terms of this is all about can we work a bit less, actually the pattern is really crucial here because one of the problems with the world of work is it can often be too rigid and that's about the relative power between workers and their employers. And actually the overall amount of time can be one kind of problem in terms of that relationship, but also there's the rigidity and the power of employers to set the pattern of work. So for people to have to rest more control over the pattern of their week um, is a really important thing. So it needn't be, you know, people going from a five-day week to a four-day week. It can be shorter working days. It can be increased provision to take lumps of time away from work. So it might be increased paid holiday. It might be more time away from work when you need to care for others, whether that's members of your family who might feel sick, but also if you become a parent, but also things like tapered retirement retiring a bit earlier than you might otherwise, but on a partial basis, and then continuing that partial retirement for a little bit longer. 
you might otherwise have done. So I think it's really important to not think about this as which sectors can implement a four-day week tomorrow. It's more about how do we put in place the preconditions across the economy for people to begin to take back time in whatever pattern suits them best. We were looking at what happened in other countries at other times and uh, countries like France, for example, where the government uh, imposed with a couple of laws this 35-hour week and in many other practical experiments as well. And a really important finding was how much people value having control over their time. So you can cut hours. Obviously, people also value having a decent pay, sufficient income. But on the thing about the hours of work, it is control matters almost as much as how much time you're working. It's knowing when you're going to have to work. It's not just being a flexibility. It ought to be for the worker, not just for the employer. And that's a very important Finding, And I would certainly echo what Alfie is saying about the four-day week. You know, we we did tussle with this and thinking, well, is this the right title? And we were convinced that people need a a simple message to get across the idea that we want to reduce the amount of hours that people work. But a four-day week is it's like a code for reducing hours to suit whatever the conditions and needs of the individual are. I'm sure we recognize that... uh, You can't have absolutely everything. It can't be flexible to the last detail for every single individual employer. But a degree of control over your time is very important. Yeah. So it's really the issue of autonomy and kind of ownership over your own, yeah, as you say, rhythms of working and time that we're talking about. Just to stay with the pandemic then for a second and what it's kind of taught us, do you think that there is something here about just the kind of rise in working from home and the extent to which that's, I guess, forced some employers to loosen the reins, as it were, a little bit over employees in terms of monitoring them and, you know, really having an eye on everything they're doing all the time. And that's therefore kind of had the knock on effect of maybe making workers themselves feel more empowered, you know, to take more control over their working patterns and things like that. And I'm not sure if either of you can answer this, but I've definitely seen in some of the things I've read a little bit of a backlash from employers, you know, trying to install things like monitoring software on people's computers and things like that. So I guess my question would be, are the lessons from the pandemic going to empower both sides, I guess, workers to feel more like they want something like this, but potentially employers to, to feel more like they actually might want to challenge it? I think the really big challenge, actually, the pandemic is that there is no one experience of it. There are vastly different experiences depending on you know, where you are in the economy, what the job is. And one of the problems is actually is we're seeing a widening gap in the inequalities of control over time. So being able to work remotely is very closely correlated with high income. Um, so people with higher incomes tend to have that flexibility more and they've been exercising it more and more over the pandemic. And that's been really good for them. And actually, employers have tended to flex a bit more with that. I mean, notwithstanding the point you're making around um, perhaps more monitoring overall, I think there has been a shift to employees having a bit more control if they were in jobs that afforded that at the beginning. Um, and actually, those same people as well, incidentally, have actually built up savings as well. So they've commuted less, they've cooked themselves more, they've built up more savings during the crisis as well. But then there's another whole part of the labour market where, you know, whether it's key workers, whether it's people in insecure contract, people that provide services at the front line of any particular sector, and they have to be there from a public customer or public service interface, where it's simply not possible to work remotely. And these sectors were actually not only has it been impossible to work more remotely at a time when it's much more dangerous to go to work, but also actually there was much more precarity at work and those were the jobs that have been vulnerable. So, so coming out of the crisis, we've got to be really careful now that this 
widening of inequalities isn't locked in. So it's good that lots of employers and lots of sectors have been able to provide this increased flexibility. But there needs to be a real doubling down now from government, from campaigns, to look at the sectors that have been more vulnerable and to make sure that we start to make gains in those sectors as well in the long run. And a big part of that is about protecting pay. It's about this whole piece around control over hours, having pay increases to give people more control over when they work, when they don't, as well as um, the wider piece of employment rights. Yes, there's a, an issue here about uh, trade union power, the right to collectively bargain, the right to belong to a union. And although some of the most vulnerable workers aren't in unions, unions are waking up to the fact that they've got to recruit more widely. And there's certainly a big correlation between workers who are well organised and workers who have more control over their time and are able to make the best of these arrangements. And one thing that struck me, because when NEF brought out its first publication on Shorter Working Week back in 2010, one of the first groups of people who came back and told us we were sort of dangerous fantasists were trade unions. They said, oh, it can't be done. It will attack the wage. And now it's quite a different atmosphere there. I think trade unions are have really embraced this agenda. And I think particularly for the reasons that Alfie was pointing out, that we can see that what's needed more than anything is to have power at work. And you can't have power at work if you haven't got a union behind you or some form of collective negotiation. So that's, I think, an important part of this picture. And one of the things we identify in the book when we set out what we call a roadmap for transition. So there are all the things that we would need to do in order to get from where we are to where we want to be. Yeah, and just to bump up uh, along with that, obviously, Annie and Alice's fantastic book, Unions Renewed, whom we recently interviewed on the podcast, which also talks a lot about that point that you're making, Anna, around collective bargaining. To go on then to some of the ideas in the book and place them in context a little bit more, John Maynard Keynes, the obviously famous economist, predicted that working hours would continue to fall throughout the 20th century and that by the 21st century, we'd all be working a 15-hour week. So what happened there? I mean, I think, you know, part of that prediction from Keynes was around, you know, increased automation, the idea that technology would end up substituting much of what Labour did. And so part of it was just wrapped up into an error in the forecast that, you know, that actually automation wasn't going to be as powerful as he thought it, it might be at the time. But actually, there's a big part of Keynes' prediction which could have and perhaps should have been accurate, which is that if you trace kind of three really important kind of variables for the economy across time. So productivity, how much uh, value people create at work for, for hours spent working in a monetized form, then how much people are actually earning. So what's um, their reward for that value they're creating? And then alongside those two, how much leisure time do people have? A really interesting pattern is that if you take the post-war period, for the first kind of couple of decades after World War II, you saw all three of those move in tandem. So productivity rose, workers got increases in real earnings, but they also got more time off, so leisure time increased as well. But then what you saw from the 1980s onwards is earnings and productivity actually, at aggregate, carried on rising. It wasn't until a financial crisis where you saw real crises in productivity and earnings. So they carried on rising, but leisure time just flatlined, or at least increased much, much slower. So despite productivity continuing to rise, and despite earnings not going up any faster than it did before, but it's continuing along a similar trend, leisure time really stalled. And that shows a, a shift. Something happened in the nature of the economy, the structure, the powers that pervade it, that caused that inflection point. And of course, you know, it coincides with new ideas around the economy in terms of return of neoclassical economics, neoliberalism, reduced density of unionisation, the UK shifting more towards service sector economy and less towards manufacturing. And these seem to have 
as I say, shifted that kind of that structural pattern of leisure time, building and building commensurate productivity. But of course, we can choose to return to that. If we set up the economy in a way that rewards workers for increased productivity gains through time off and not just increase earnings, then we can return to that pattern. And indeed, you know, for productivity gains that have already been made historically, we can start to think about, well, what is the right composition of reward workers? Is it all about increasing earnings all the time or should we be taking more time off? Mm, But as you say, it certainly seems that the first step is just to merely have some of these conversations and ask some of these questions, because I definitely agree with uh, your framing that we're not even at that point yet, sadly. Um, But let's focus in on the shorter working week and specifically some of the benefits. So you mention in the book that there would be a lot of kind of benefits around health and mental health in particular. So the health and safety executive found that nearly 8 million days last year were lost because of work-related mental health issues. So how would a shorter working week week change that? A lot of the causes of mental ill health at work is to do with people just not having control over their work and not having enough time. And so if we're working shorter hours, we have a better balance between what we're doing in paid employment and what we're doing at home. If we have childcare responsibilities or we're looking after elderly relatives, whatever it may be, if we've got a better balance, we're likely to be in a better mental and physical state. And that is both good for the workers and is also good for business because it means less sick pay, less sick leave, less absenteeism. And people are just more inclined to be committed to their work if they're not run ragged by the time regime that they have. So it's, uh, I mean, there's, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming on that one. Mm. And Alfie, what about some of the other things? So environmental impact, future-proofing the economy around the effects of automation, what are some of the other benefits there? Well, I think the really interesting finding that we try and lift up in the book, which draws on academic Juliet Shaw's work, is that when you talk about reduced working hours, a key factor for the environment then is what effect does that have on people's spending? And to the extent that people have to experience a pay cut with reduced working hours, then that reduces consumption, which has a positive environmental impact. And that's not something that we recommend pursuing because many people who rely on work for their livelihoods don't have the space or the or the luxury of being able to reduce their pay in spending. And actually, we'll come on to this in a bit, there are lots of um, synergies towards increased productivity, increased pay and more time off. But a second bit is around the composition of spending or the pattern of spending. So if you spend less time at work or less time commuting to work and have more time for leisure, then what you tend to see is that it's not so much the overall amount of spending, but the composition of spending within that changes. People spend less on you know, fast food while they're commuting or they have time to repair something that they break rather than replace it. And so you see less resource intensive spending as a result of people having more time off away from work. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Let's carry on and cover some of the top questions that people generally have when we talk about the shorter working week. So first of all, and it's come up a lot already, but this question of how much people are paid. So as we know, lots of people are already really struggling to make ends meet. And if the shorter working week doesn't mean paying people less, then what does it mean? So I think this goes back to the point we were talking about very early on around this isn't just about how do you move everyone from a five-day week to a four-day week, it's how do you set preconditions that allow people to, across their lifetime, work less at whatever pattern they might choose is best for them. And there are lots of policies you can put in place to make sure that people working less comes with paid protection. So for example, one route might be to start gradually increasing paid time off, so annual statutory leave. If that were to increase in the economy every year, just as we increase minimum wage, you'd start to see, on average, people working less, but with no drop in pay, given that that paid holiday remains intact. Similarly, with pensions, people at the moment in the UK 
are entitled to a pension contribution from government if they were able to access that a bit earlier, retire a bit earlier, and move to uh, shorter working hours before retirement, but draw down their pension a bit earlier. That would be another way to ensure that people are working less without a head to pay. But also policies like increased parental leave, paid parental leave, uh, would be crucial as well to allow people to protect pay whilst taking more time off. So a lot of it is about policies that are put in place and the preconditions that are set through government labour market regulation that allows workers to have more leisure time without having to forego a cut in salary. Mm, so it would really need to be a kind of nexus of all these different policies and things being brought in and, and work around at the same time. Okay, so often when people are calling for shorter working hours, the demand that they have, and as you say, the name of the book is Four Day Week. And I, I really understand through what you've said so far in the podcast that um, that's not necessarily the kind of demand in and of itself. As you say, it's more of a kind of rallying cry. But the Four Day Week as a demand, is that a kind of magic number which we've decided kind of will make us happiest or is that a strategic demand just based on what seems politically feasible now? I think it's much more about getting people to imagine. So it's a hook that people can stir up the imagination. What would it be like to have a a three-day weekend or what would it be like to work 30 hours instead of 37 and a half or 40 hours a week spread out in a different way? So maybe it would be you know, five short days or perhaps it would be your working regime would be linked to the school term times, which is another thing that I mean, many people would probably want. So I think the four day week is a rallying call. It's a way of getting people to imagine things being different rather than saying, we think there definitely should be a four day week for all. But we're not going to get this change tomorrow. We will get this change over time. And we probably will end up with a four day week being the norm. But we're not going to get there unless we go through the sorts of changes that Alfie is suggesting. So we have gradual change, some of which is negotiated by trade unions, some of which is brought to being through individual claims, and some of which is to do with government regulations, for example, bringing in new um, annual leave and so on. These gradual changes will change public attitudes about what the norm is. And then as time goes by, we can underpin that with more regulations to make sure that people don't have to work more than that time. So that's roughly what we try and set out in this roadmap in the book. Um, New York Foundation has proposed a shift in labour market regulation that government could push forward itself, which would be to set up a body that acts a lot like the Low Pay Commission in the UK, which already is mandated to recommend increases in the minimum wage every year consistent with kind of getting to a better place in um, over a four-year time period. So at the moment, they're, they're trying to get the national minimum wage to get to a certain proportion of average earnings in the economy. And our proposal is you would have something similar on time off. So just as you expect minimum wage to grow through time as, you know, as costs rise, but also as productivity and output increases in the economy, our idea is that so too should workers structurally and enforced by government expect to have more paid time off. And so this commission could sit independently of government, it could analyse the economy, analyse what's happening to pay and productivity, and then make recommendations for how much new leisure time the economy can absorb over a given time horizon, just bake in the idea that just like it did after World War II, that was disrupted from the 1980s onwards, uh, we should return to a place where leisure time is rising commensurate with a more prosperous economy. 
And off the back of that then, Alfie, if we do kind of get to a new normal, as Anna was mentioning, where we're only working four days a week as standard, should we then be demanding three days and then two? Is the kind of ideal ultimately to reduce the amount we work as much as possible? What's the kind of end goal? Is there an end goal? Just building on one point Anna made, I think the main value of talking about a four-day week is just to make people think, hang on a minute, why is it even five days? How did we get here? Um, is this something that can change? And the reason that the kind of talking about days in the week is powerful is because it wasn't long ago that we did work a six or seven day um, week. In terms of where we're trying to get to, I I'm, tend to be uh, probably unusual for an economist, pretty sceptical about anyone that tries to forecast or predict uh, not only where the world's going, but also actually what the ideal world is. I think the world's much more complex than that. And we have to, all we can really do is be clear about our values and what is guiding us and what we're trying to achieve in broad brush terms. I don't think you can precisely say, you know, the perfect labor market is one where we have five days off and two days working or three days off and four days working. The key thing, I think, is the question of power. It's giving workers the power in the economy to exercise more discretion over their working lives. And that's a combination of both giving them more autonomy and agency over their working life and their patterns of work, but also actually it's about paying them more, particularly where people are so reliant on long hours, precisely because they're not paid enough to make ends meet. And can I just add to that, that um, it's really important this is seen as something that's universal and that it's just as much for men as it is for women. Because that good old phrase that we've heard quite a lot, the work-life balance, has traditionally been about women looking for time off so that they can do their domestic work, childcare more easily. But this has got to be ultimately for women and men on equal terms. And one of the main things it can achieve if we can get to that point is that if men and women are working shorter hours, possibly in different distributions of time to suit however the family arranges it. But if men and women are working shorter hours, it does mean that women are able to do less work, childcare, domestic work, and so on. So it it just unlocks that really intractable factor that sits inside gender inequalities and that hasn't shifted for you know more than a quarter of a century since we've had laws against unfair discrimination against women. So I think it's important that it is for everyone and we have to keep that sort of central in our minds when we're thinking about how it's going to pan out in the future. And I would certainly agree with Alfie that there's no point predicting where it's going to go. But what we do want to be able to do is to aim for it being more equally distributed, both between women and men and between different income groups and so on. Okay, I I want to wrap up by taking a look at some of the practical steps that you've alluded to already. But I had a quick burning question before then, which has been niggling at me a little bit since we started talking about the pandemic. Because one of the things that feels at least true for me in my organization is actually trialing the four day week primarily because of COVID, right? Um, And looking to make it a long-term thing and encourage other organizations that we work with to do the same. And some of the kind of conversations I've been having with other people in other organizations, they've kind of said, well, we need to reduce working hours right now because it's a really difficult time for everyone. You know, people are looking after loved ones uh, or maybe children or mental health is really bad. And so we kind of had no option but to cut down to a four-day week or reduced hours. But when things go back to normal, we won't need to do that anymore because these are extenuating circumstances. So I just, yeah, I was, I was wondering what you might say to that as a kind of argument back, a pushback, I guess, against the idea of reducing working hours, that this is just a one-off and when everything goes back to normal, there'll be no need for it. Well, I think, I think this um, overlaps a lot with a lot of the kind of argument and discussion around productivity and time. So 
There are lots of reasons to think that as you encourage workers to work shorter working weeks, there are lots of opportunities for productivity to rise. And by productivity, I mean, I should say this is technical productivity, which means for an hour of work that you do, the amount of goals that you complete or money that you make if in the private sector, essentially the amount of output you get for a unit of time put in. And of course, if productivity rises as people work less, then the overall amount of stuff getting done stays the same or may even rise. And so there's no reason if productivity is rising for people to revert back to longer hours um, if they've been able to increase productivity. But of course, productivity doesn't just change from a magic wand. It has to have you know, preconditions in place and, and active intervention from, from employers across the economy. So but there, but there are reasons to believe productivity will rise as a result of people working less. So some of the things uh, speak back to things Anna was talking about around well-being. So actually, if, if workers have more energy, more commitment, have higher morale, just generally healthier, um, they will be able to perform better at work. Equally, you know, if employers find themselves having to make do with a shorter amount of hours available from their staff, they may start to think creatively about how they start to raise productivity as the structure of the business. A key example of this actually is that following the financial crisis, what we saw in the UK was a rise in much less secure patterns of work. So fixed term contracts, lots of outsourcing. And that's actually terribly inefficient and unproductive because you're having jobs negotiated on an hour by hour basis and people moving between workplaces and not building up skills and experience. Whereas actually if workers are brought in-house, even if they're working fewer hours, there can be efficiency gains from not having to jump from one job to the next. But also, so long as spending is maintained in the economy overall, as I was talking about before, as long as there's demand for goods and services from employers, then employers will be incentivized to raise that productivity as well so they can meet that new demand, which again allows them to facilitate shorter working weeks as well. I think there's something else to bear in mind here, and that is people are expected to just take cut in hours temporarily as a crisis management thing and then there's a move back to and people are saying, well, the crisis is over now. Let's all go back to normal time. We have to bear in mind the effect of people having had that experience and understanding what it means to them and how difficult it may be for many people to go back to full hours when they've got used to working shorter hours and how much they've begun to value their time differently. And that will definitely have an effect. And the other thing to bear in mind is that um, there are some jobs where you have to think about productivity differently because you're thinking about actually the quality of the work. I mean, caring is one example. Teaching is another. You know, driving a bus on public transport is another where you can't do things faster and get more and more output per hour. But what you can do is if you are treated well, if you're feeling good, if you are not got a lot of stress and anxiety, is you can work better. And so the outcome of the work is better. And that's something that we can be aiming for as well. There's also an old adage uh, called Parkinson's law, which is that, you know, a task uh, tends to take as much time as you give it. And certainly that's not true. Who does certain things I do all the time? That's very true as well. And if, if I'm asked to do something in a short amount of time, actually, that's often quite helpful. And I can find a way to do it. It's, it's obviously not necessarily a really serious point and doesn't apply um, for many types of jobs. But there is something in the fact that if you change the norms, change expectations, change the structures, it's amazing actually what people can do. 
Mm, fascinating stuff. Okay, so let's finish off by talking practically. I mean, we've touched on this already, but just to kind of wrap up with uh, some real instruction around how a shorter working week could be implemented. So you've said that the government, trade unions and employers all have a role to play alongside workers themselves, obviously. So let's take each of them in turn. What steps should the government be taking to begin a transition to a shorter working week? Well, I think there's a risk of repeating. I think this is it's all the things I was talking about before. And, and again, it's about not about stepping in with heavy handed directives and saying, right, the working week has changed. Um, there is a role, I think, for maximum hours to be gradually reduced. But those at the moment are way beyond you know normal working hours. That's just to really guard against um, perverse or excessive working hours being asked of people. It's much more about thinking about the average hours across the economy and about the average hours across people's life cycle and then putting in place lots of different policy levers so that when people interact with their workplace at different uh, stages of their working life they're able to leverage more paid time off and so that as I said that you know it a moment for that is pensions and allow people to retire a bit earlier but partially on a, a reduced hours draw down their pension income a bit earlier as well while they do that um, it's about more paid time off to care for children for family members if they're sick and it's also about this gradual but persistent ratcheting up of paid holiday time across the economy that allow people to choose when they take that time off but when they do so it doesn't come with a drop in pay. Okay and what about trade unions then? I know they've been mentioned and Anna you were talking about how initially they were resistant to this notion when you first started talking about it so what's their role in the transition and are any unions doing this already? Well, I wouldn't want to um, generalise too much about uh, the way that trade unions have responded in the past. There's certainly a lot more enthusiasm now, and I think it is about negotiating shorter hours as time goes by and making sure that pay is protected when hours are cut. But the transition that we've got is a really clear line of steps that we think that we can take. I mean, we have to agree what our principles are. So, for example, we've talked about the importance of it being universal and about pay must be protected and um, that it's not just about shortening the working week it's about um, a broader agenda that will for example strengthen trade unions collective power so you have to agree the guidelines you've got to recognize where the innovations are the innovations that are coming from employers as well as from trade unions and individuals and support that innovation with various measures that can be about strengthening collective bargaining about regulating so that when individuals do make claims to work shorter hours, they will have a right to have their claim accepted unless there are really good reasons not to do so. And there are also things you can do to incentivize employers, like changing the tax regimes and perhaps introducing a formal accreditation system. And then building on existing entitlements, and this is something that Alfie's talked about, so more paid time off for caring and so on, And shifting public attitudes, you need a campaigning element in there so people can find out, we can spread the word about how things are changing and what difference it makes and so on. And then embedding the change and building momentum. And that's when something like the Working Time Commission comes in. And also we talked about working towards a living wage that did match a shorter working week. So that would mean making sure that hourly rates of pay makes sense when people are working fewer hours a week. So these are many and many other things. So there is a route map that's set out at the end of the book and we do think it's a it's a useful guide to how we can get from where we are to where we want to be. Another um point to, to flag actually is one that you mentioned before, Aisha, in terms of 
you know, whether or not the response to the pandemic will be temporary or not. And actually, it's moments like this that are really important for spontaneous and voluntary steps forward and, and innovation from companies. So, for example, when you have a scheme like the furlough scheme uh, or similar schemes in other countries that allows workers to reduce their hours while still protecting pay, what you'll tend to then see is employers thinking about you know, creative solutions to maintain the output of those companies on reduced hours. And of course, some of those experiments will be very successful. And employers will actually realise they can do more with less in the future, or actually when they've got workers that are better rested, happier in their workplace, they'll do better work, all the things Anna was talking about. Those things will now be realised through experience and through the experience of the last last few months and probably months, if not years, to come. And so it's, it's a breeding ground for innovation. And of course, what we know about dynamic economies is that when particular companies or particular sectors stumble across new ways of working that are beneficial, then it tends to spread um, and you have a, a adoption you know, across firms. And so it's these sorts of things as well, where you enable innovation through government policy, like subsidised short, shorter hours, but that enables, um, that provides preconditions for those experimentations to take place and take root. Mm, and as you say, I mean, all we can hope for, I guess, is that the uh, one of the few silver linings of the pandemic is it gives people a taste of this kind of autonomy and control that is possible to have over your working life. And that causes them to rally behind the call for the four day week. We shall see. But that's all we've got time for this week, sadly. Alfie Sterling, first of all, thanks so much for joining me. Where can people grab a copy of you and Anna's book, The Case for a Four Day Week? Thanks a lot for having me on. Um, that's a really good question, actually. Anna might be better. <laughs> <laughs> so I might have to cut that out. <laughs> Um, no, it will, it'll be on the website as soon as it's available. It's published on the 27th of November and we're launching it. NEF is launching the book on the 3rd of December. And so it'll be available from then onwards. Fab. And Anna Coot, thanks again to you for joining me. You did just answer that question. But also, if people want to find out more about your work or read more from you, where can they go? On the NEF website. Oh, sounds good. Okay, go to the NEF website for everything that you you ever need, lovely listener. It's all there. Uh, That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.